Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. This is the Progressive Commentary Hour. Our theme today is weaponization of words among the woke to advance dysfunctional social change. In every area of life today, from education to finance to farming, uh, we have people who are standing up and challenging some of the wrong-headedness of what's being advocated. People are advocating for peace, and yet the majority are supporting war, including members of Congress. Well, how can you say you're for peace, and yet you finance the military-industrial complex and have no control over what they do? We need to discuss this. And one person who has stood out over decades of helping people is Danny Katz, D-A-N-I-K-A-T-Z. She is a communications consultant. She is an outstanding journalist. She has written and published in LA Weekly, Los Angeles Times, Vice, Teen Vogue, Santa Fe Reporter, Reality Sandwich, and many others. In fact, she was the lead researcher and author of the highly censored documentary, Pandemic 2, Indoctrination. She is also the author of a very important book called Word Up, Little Languaging Hacks for Big Change and Pop Propaganda, an illustrated guide. Nice to have you with us today, Danny. Thanks so much for having me, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here. During the better part of the last decade, we have been witnessing an acceleration, almost inconceivable transformation of our society, which has now spilled over into other countries. And it's largely based upon how we use words and how we've weaponized words and how we weaponize our emotions. People screaming at the top of their lungs instead of carrying on a civil conversation. There is no room in the public arena for civil people to discuss and dialogue in a way that we can listen to what someone else may have to say. Could you imagine people that I knew and befriended, Buckminster Fuller, George uh, uh, George Borgstrom, Rene Dubow, Linus Pauling, Albertson Georgi, etc., and two of those were Nobel Prize winners. And if you had a conversation with them, it was always civil. You could disagree or agree, but when they talked, you listened. And you hoped that when you spoke in response, they listened. So you could see what in my belief system, what are my values, should I surrender? And of course, the most powerful thing in the world to surrender, if you want to be free to grow, is your knowledge. Because knowledge is not wisdom. Knowledge are the accumulated facts enculturated in, in into us by family, friends, peers, teachers, and the larger community of science and medicine and education that tells us what our values should be. But one day we wake up and we ask, how much of this is true? Which things do I have that have created my perception of reality? And which of those are real and which must I surrender? When we can do that, have the courage to do that, then we're open to see things for what they are. And if we don't do that, we'll never see the truth in anything. We'll only see the illusion of what other people expect us to see, need us to see. And frequently today, it's first scaring us. And so we're looking through some eyes that are based upon fear of the outcome if we do not acquiesce our authority over our choices. Your thoughts, please. Thank you so much, Gary. I think what we're dealing with is a techno-fascist takeover through decades of ideological subversion. Um, I think Yuri Bezmenov really broke it down quite well in terms of the aims of getting into academia, having at least two decades so that um, the academic system can take over the youth um, and, and that is what we're seeing. I also think it's a, a very long, long, long propaganda campaign of demoralization um, that has it so that we have a self-esteem deficient populace that's very, very easy to control, that will easily sell themselves and their fellow man and woman down the river for you know, social acceptance. And I think that we can't underestimate how much mind control is being used here to shut down people's critical thinking capacities, because so much of it defies logic, defines, it, it, it defies like the humanity. You know, when I think of my own path and how many friends and colleagues I've lost through this ideological subversion, the way that they're behaving betrays the character that 
at least I thought I knew. So I think that there's some sort of like frequency weaponry that's being laid in in the words. Words are, are definitely being weaponized massively. Um, we also have this extreme tech culture, you know, so whereas, you know, when I was a kid growing up, we we only had three channels, you know, then it moved into like maybe five or six different channels. And at midnight, there was just snow on the television. So there weren't options for screens to check out, to be programming me. These days, it's literally a 24-7 onslaught. Even when I go to put gas in my car, there's like a little screen at the gas pump that's trying to tell me what to think, what to believe. So I think it's, you know, they play a long game, the social engineers. And I think that this has been in the works for a very long time. And uh, it's devastating and it's heartbreaking. And there's a lot of cognitive dissonance in moving through the world as, as a free thinker and being so incredibly demonized and vilified for not towing the party line, which at this point is essentially a cult. Those are my initial thoughts on it. I thank you for the opening there. What are your thoughts about the anger-filled rhetoric voiced between the words labeled of left and right? Because that in itself will spark controversy and, and animus. <clears throat> and then today, it is almost impossible to have a debate without tempers rising, people accusing people, without simply looking at what each position is, and do they have a capacity to stay neutral long enough to hear what a person is actually saying to see if there's something they may agree or not agree with? And if a person has been wrong, do they have the courage and character and integrity to say, you know something, I was wrong on this. I've learned my lesson on this and hopefully can apply this lesson to the future. Let me give you a specific example. From the very beginning of the a COVID pandemic, as a scientist, as well as a journalist, I th saw many things that made no sense whatsoever. And I shared that with my audience. And immediately there was, you know, people taking umbrage with the fact that I wasn't in alignment with Fauci and Dr. Collins, head of the U.S. Public Health Service, and Walensky and all the other cast of characters that were involved in forming the official narrative. It made no sense. And so I questioned it. And But I did so in a polite manner. I, I don't attack people. I can challenge ideas. And uh, so anyhow, everyone went along with it. The vast majority of the media, all of our government agencies, the entirety of the medical industrial complex, over 900,000 physicians, nurses, pharmacists, dutifully said, there's no treatment until a person gets so sick that they have to go to a hospital, ICU, and be intubated and or generally die. At the same time, there was a opposite group of people who said, hold on, there's a lot we can do, and frequently if we do it quickly, monoclonal antibodies, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, vitamin C, zinc, um, uh, quercetin, um, vitamin D3, um, and uh, that we can stop it. And we have evidence of it. One physician alone treated over 10,000 patients. And all that were treated early, all 10,000 lived, overcame COVID, and now had natural immunity. Four of them who he treated late, who were already in hospital, died. But just imagine being able to say, hold on, everyone, look over here. I have 10,000 cases. You can read my case reports. You can see the evidence. Shouldn't we be looking at what we can do to save lives? I just saved 10,000 out of 10,000 lives. Instead, that person was attacked. Every doctor, all pro-vaccine, all pro-orthodox, all were attacked. Not one was spared. We're talking about people who had impeccable credentials at the top of their field and published authors, uh, Dr. Cole and, and Dr. Malone, etc., Dr. Merrick. But the media went along with this. And when the media went along and not a single reporter broke ranks, they said the following, get the vaccine, you will not spread it to other people, you can go anywhere then, life returns normal, you won't get sick and you won't die. None of that was true. This week, in the European Union, a special commission 
on COVID, investigating COVID, and as vice chair, a Dutch uh, parliamentarian, asked a question of uh, Pfizer. Did you test the vaccine for preventing infection? Yes or no? She said, no, we didn't test it. And they were so stunned that they had a press conference afterwards of the European member union um, members to show how outraged they were because think of everything that turned upside down. Businesses closed by the millions, people having to be kept at home, uh, people committing suicide, people taking fentanyl, people dying of alcoholism. All these crises, people being diagnosed with deep depression and suicidal ideation and thoughts. And all of this is caused because we were told, get vaccinated and you prevent infection. So the entire premises, and that's just one of many of the fallacies, but not a single person has come forward yet and said, you know something, we were wrong. Our entire model was an artificial model. We were wrong. We apologize. So now the very people who are criticized and condemned and shunned and created a form of COVID apartheid are now saying, we will not attack you because your freedom of choice was to become and um, uh, get the vaccine. But you've attacked us for not getting it as if we're the lunatic outliers. Can you take this example, please, and show how people align themselves, as you said, like a cult, where they would not hear an argument, they would not have an argument, they would scream, they would fight people, and then legislation and condemnation follow that. So if you didn't get vaccinated, even if you had legitimate reasons, uh, you were to be condemned and canceled. And we're talking about worldwide. Yeah, there's there's so many different pieces there that I would like to address. So I think regarding the condemnation and the, the sort of lockstep of those who bought in to the fictional narrative, the dominant narrative, I think that the repercussions of allowing the real deal truth that Gary, you and I know to seep in is so threatening to their worldview. Like it just destabilizes so many basic understandings of how our, our country works, how government works, how these various um, oversight organizations who allegedly have our back are so corrupt. So I think that denial is a self-protection, an unconscious self-protection mechanism, because it's like a game of Jenga, right? You take out one piece, like, oh, they're lying about this, and then so many other pieces just fall. So I think a lot of people are really invested in the fiction that they've built their lives upon, and it's unthinkable and messy and terrifying for them to relinquish that. I also think that many people don't actually have the psycho-emotional tools or support systems in place to allow their worldviews to crumble. And again, I think this is all by design. I, I think this has been, you know, I, I know from my research that this has been in the works for a long time. And I'm starting to understand uh, the extent of the coordination. So if you look at you know, the advent of reality television and how, how that has increased in popularity in the past couple decades. And that is like the worst behavior, you know, people being horrible to one another and abusive and getting more ratings for saying mean things. I think that that has all been part of how they've been programming us and in training us to behave similarly. I've also seen it in journalism. I, you know, as a journalist, I, I, I don't pay attention to mainstream news except to see where they're propagandizing. But I was shocked maybe about 10 years ago to see a, an anchor woman on television who was dressed like she was going clubbing, you know, with like a, a ton of makeup and this very sexy form fitting dress. And I was shocked that that was where news was going. And then you have all these 
you know, anchors and reporters offering their opinion and editorializing, right? And I think a lot of people now have forgotten that journalism is meant to be objective. So now we've gotten used to, you know, the so-called authorities in media and journalism smearing their opinions. When Trump took office, it reached this literally insane crescendo of of character assassination and insults and dehumanization. And again, you know, going back to how we're all educated in this country, to all of the indoctrination and enculturation, people do what they see their quote unquote leaders and influencers on television doing, right? So when people started to badmouth Trump and call Trump names and all of that, I think then they just kind of started to embrace this way of speaking about other people, which for me is odd because I know that, you know, parents tell children not to call one another names, but most of the adults in this country seem to have forgotten that. So I think all of that has contributed to a really low, low vibration, um, unconscious discourse, right? I think in terms of, you know, the debates, I I live in New Mexico and we have a governor's race and we just had the debates, the second debates last night. And this morning before I, I hopped on to talk to you, I, I was paying attention to the highlights and it, it was so devastating. Like all they're doing is trash talking one another. And, and as I was really happy to hear you mention neutrality. There's no neutrality. They're emotionally unhinged. They're projecting opinions. They're projecting assumptions. They're not talking about policies or their visions for how to make things more wonderful. And it's, you know, and I've talked to local politicians here because I have a language of neutrality program, which I feel like right now we have a really dangerously divided polarized populace and from my perspective that's not authentic or organic at all that has been deliberately engineered so i'm always focused on well what's the solution you know like how are we going to heal this for humanity neutrality is the only way so you mentioned polarities you know left right good, bad, better, worse. Polarity constructs in and of themselves are weaponized because they force people to take these extreme positions. There's no room within polarity constructs for gray area, for nuance. So it's it's a very simplistic way of forcing people into an A-B choice. So I would say like, taking polarity constructs out of the political discourse would be super helpful. I very often hear politicians with good ideas saying really sane things in terms of policy or what would be good for the American people or the people of their state or district or whatever. And then they'll cap it off with a, you know, but those liberals, but those Democrats, and it's, it's completely unnecessary. All it does is bring everyone down and divide and it distracts us from talking about the actual issues at hand and instead defaulting to these team allegiances that are completely infantile and off topic from my perspective. So I think our only way through this is to come back to neutrality, to speak a language of neutrality, to speak to the solutions that we're calling out without needing to demonize the people who disagree. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know, and it's frustrating that that's become it's like blood sport that's become trendy in the discourse that it's doing all of us a disservice. And I also think in terms of just, you know, some, some of the larger issues informing the distortions in our culture, debate is a really outdated mode of, and I, A, of like political exchange, but also I don't think it indicates leadership capability, like being able to trash talk someone and cling to a position at all odds doesn't indicate to me that someone is going to be a successful leader. I'm more interested in how well someone can listen, can actively listen, can collaborate, can take all of the interests and perspectives that are on the table and come up with a solution that speaks to, you know, the the greatest good of all. And so I also think in terms of, you know, there's this 
this phrase in the New Age community, the return of the divine feminine, and as I'm saying it, I'm kind of rolling my eyes. I think it's extremely misused, overused, and misunderstood. From my perspective, um, in terms of like capital M masculine, capital F feminine, this extreme um, focus on left-brained rationalist materialism that's where the, the the masculine has been elevated above the feminine. The feminine is more about emotion, intuition, cooperation, um, making space for all of us. So in terms of like how the pendulums of extreme swing, I think we're seeing the extreme masculine, capital M masculine form of communication um, reaching its kind of psychotic apex in terms of its devolution. And I, and I want to be clear when I'm saying masculine, I don't mean men at all, at all, at all, at all, all men and women are informed and embodied by masculine and feminine polarities. I'm just talking about how our current system isn't, um, isn't a balanced expression or alchemy of both the masculine and the feminine. I think this like debate and this winning and this trying to make someone else look stupid and make them wrong and, you know, hating on, on the, the vaccinated. I think that's an extreme of this overdeveloped masculine polarity that has been driving our culture until now. Well said. Well, you've just shared your thoughts on about the anger filled rhetoric voice between the words and labels of left and right, those are really antiquated concepts now. And in the past, those holding strong differences of opinion were able to dialogue and debate. Today, as you mentioned, that is nearly impossible because words and language of accusations and labels and constantly being to uh, tossed about to divide and create sharp divisions in the electorate is counterproductive. What is the object of the exercise? If I am looking at a problem and I say, okay, we've got a, we've got a virus, a COVID virus. It is secondary to who created it, when it was created. It's primary. How can we keep people from dying initially? Well, you build up their immune system. Using only the peer-reviewed literature that found on PubMed, we found over 20,000 studies about the immune augmentation of vitamin C, quercetin, zinc, um, and, uh, and vitamin A in, in helping individuals under any condition to have a stronger immune system. So I thought, wouldn't it make sense to do an article where, on the one hand, those who are the ultra-Orthodox mindset in medicine and science couldn't say, well, where'd you get that information? Well, we got it from your journals. It was on PubMed, Library of Medicine, peer-reviewed from Harvard, Stanford, etc. Okay, now can you just stop your bias for a moment? Can you go to neutral for a moment and ask yourself, is it more important for you to show that I'm someone you disagree with vehemently, so no matter what information I share, no matter how positive and no matter what my results, you have to deny its virtue. Therefore, you have to say, well, that's just quackery. Or are you open to the idea that in your medical indoctrination, because it certainly wasn't medical education by itself, that you were taught which protocols were best for big pharma and the medical industrial complex rather than what is best in the nature of healing and prevention? Because I saw nothing was really done to prevent a person's immune system. So we had obesity, we had emphysema, dementia, heart disease, diabetes, who were that were known as powerful comorbidities, meaning if you had any one or multiple of these, you were far more likely to contract the virus and get sick because of it. So what didn't it make sense just to try to get these people who had comorbidities healthier? That's something that could be done by a Surgeon General in the U.S. Public Health Service doing public service announcements, having local clinics set up in every community where people could go in and free of charge, they could become a part of a a wellness project, not with products, because there'd be no products. It would be insights and information, how to diet, how to de-stress, how to, how to eat properly, a healthy plant-based diet. Those are non-controversial, and they're all supported by mainstream science. So then what happens is if they said yes, yeah, well, that makes sense. Let's just, until we have a cure or treatment that works, 
Let's just try to prevent people from getting sick by getting them healthier. That's a reasonable approach. So I wrote not one but two articles, and they were the least downloaded articles I think I've ever written. I've written almost 900 articles, and I've broken over 300 original stories. And, uh, and I'm asking myself, why is it that even my own audience wasn't using this information? And that led me to a deeper issue. The doctors weren't using it. The scientists weren't using it. 900,000 doctors are still of one mindset today that whatever was given was right. And no matter how it's been contradicted by actual independent science, deny the science. The media denies the science. Now it's overwhelming. When a person says, no, we didn't, and Pfizer itself is saying, no, we didn't test for infection, then the entire house of cards crumbles. It's that quick. It's that, it's that simple. But going back to my main point, the issue was divide and conquer, create fear. By creating fear, you divide people. In effect, you have emotionally balkanized the American psyche. And so then it's, we are the liberal community, hence we're the, dem corporate, we're the Demo we're Democrats, we're corporate Democrats, and what we say is always in the betterment of the average working class person. It's just the opposite. Oh, everything has been just the opposite, but the average person is not paying attention to this. And the average Republican is the same way. We're all for family. Well, what about the families in Yemen? You for them too? Because, you know, are you for the families in Mali? How about the families of, of Qaddafi's uh, uh, millions of citizens? They were the wealthiest, highest educated, longest lived, most democratic group of the 54 countries in Africa. They were number one. They were the Paris of Africa. And you destroyed them because you want to destroy the gold denier and take their oil. And you succeeded at both. So how'd that work out? Well, we're not going to go back there. If we ever have to go back and say we got it wrong, we'll say lessons learned. Ah, lessons learned. I see. So as long as you can do the worst bidding in the world, polarize, condemn, and then destroy someone, no matter how many bodies you have, no matter how many psyches you fractured, lessons learned is your Pontius Pilate, I wash my hands, it's out of my hands. No, it's not out of your hands. It's your legacy. You created it. But we don't even have the maturity at this moment to recognize our own human deficiencies. It was Mark Twain who said, people are like the moon. There's the bright side and there's the dark side. And we refuse to acknowledge the dark side of human nature. And yet we only elect people to the highest position in government and the most powerful people in the world who come from the dark side. Trump dark side, Biden, dark side, Obama, dark side, Clinton, dark side, George Bush, dark side, senior and junior, dark side, <laughs> uh, and Ronald Reagan, dark side. So we're not willing to even be honest about what is the object of the exercise, to hire someone that becomes a public servant for everyone's benefit, a doctor that does not discriminate against a therapy because they weren't trained in it, and since they won't use coenzyme Q10 and L-carnitine or magnesium for your heart, or someone who will only give what they were conditioned to believe was the right thing. So we are an extremely conditioned, over-conditioned, over-manipulated, and overly acquiesced volunteering for our imprisonment in this very narrow frame of reality. And from that, you have a woke culture that then becomes the cherry on the top. Now they, a small, radicalized, uneducated group of people who couldn't create an a intelligent thought, becomes the people who then decide the fate of the world. That's how obscene we are today. Those are my thoughts. Please deconstruct any that you would disagree with. I disagree with none of it. I think you're spot on. Um, <clears throat> and I, I like that I think, you know, the main points were overly acquiescent and we don't even have the maturity at this moment. And I don't think we are aware of how conditioned we are to bow to external authority. You know, they've changed the definition of the words empowerment and authority to mean something external that has to be earned. You know, so an authority now versus the etymology, which is 
a, a builder, founder, one who causes to grow. That's what authority actually means. But now our doctors are, are, are the authority. So we believe them. We trust them to know our bodies better than we know our bodies, even though we're the ones living with them. The Western medical you know, complex was co-opted by, you know, decades ago, a century ago by Rockefeller, you know, who, who got into the curriculum of the medical schools, who changed, you know, the way that medicine was done, has put considerable resources into demonizing alternative treatments. You know, you talk about all the things that they didn't mention that would strengthen people's immune response. What about fear? All that intense, intense, incessant 24-7 fear-mongering, um, that's the quickest way to shut down an immune response is to flood the body with cortisol and other fear hormones. So I think it's, again, you know, we're looking at generations and generations of programming such that the majority of the populace is so disempowered, has no real clear sense of self and also no mission, right? And I think that's a really big part of it. So when they see the, these people on their television telling them what to think because they don't have an authentic understanding of themselves, an intuitive sense of, of a true north, of, of logic, of what makes sense, they're just following, following, following. And so... You know, I think it's the the elevation of these so-called authority figures and people's weakness of character is allowing them to just parrot a lot of these things that's going to win them virtue signaling points. And I think the other piece about virtue signaling, which is, you know, that is the basis of woke culture. That's, you know, any person we see wearing a mask alone in their car. That's, you know, anyone who has the Ukraine flag as their profile picture, um, that's because people don't know themselves as virtuous, right? If we know we're actually good people, then we don't have to virtue signal. So this is, again, the social engineers, the cultural engineers taking advantage of these weaknesses that have been programmed into the populace to get them to behave in these certain ways for social acceptance. And it's extremely dangerous. You know, of all the work that I do, um, and I've been, as you can imagine, extremely censored and extremely shadow banned. At this point, what gets me censored the most is sharing tools that empower people. That's really what they don't want. Because when we know ourselves as empowered, when we know ourselves as our own sovereign authorities, then we're not going to be pushed around. And I also think, um, that people are lacking purpose and mission is a big part of why they've taken on this language policing, the, the vaccine policing, this whole thing that has people policing others is because, again, through decades of ideological subversion, a lot of people don't really know themselves. They don't really know their purpose. They don't really you know, have a, a mission for being here. But when they can shame other people for being worse then they, you know, unconsciously feel about themselves. Now they have a mission. Now they have something that gets them through the day. Let me find everyone who's not wearing a mask and yell at them. Let me, you know, police everyone's language so that I can feel like I have a function here on the planet. And a lot of that is really through the languaging. Um, you know, the, the phrase anti-racist has become so so popularized. But if you're an anti-racist, and if that's how one is identifying, then that person needs racism to have a purpose, to have existential validity. If I'm, a, you know, let's take it out of racism just, just to, you know, appease woke culture. I'll just talk about sexism, right? If I claim to be an anti-sexist, then I need sexism so that I can be on purpose every day. So everything is gonna be filtered through a mind that has been programmed to be an anti-sexist mind. And I'm gonna take neutral behaviors, um, neutral things that are tossed about in conversation, and I'm gonna try to back them into this sexism category so that I can be on purpose, so that I can have triumphs for my day. So 
and it's all a trap. Anti-sexism necessarily gives us more sexism. Anti-racism is going to necessarily give us more racism, as we're seeing. You know, Black Lives Matter came up under Obama, which I think is interesting, right? 2013, we have the first Black president, and then there's a narrative that race relations have gotten so bad in our country that now we need this movement called Black Lives Matter. And, you know, from my perspective, what happens in the police department is quite different from how humans behave with one another on the street. So, you know, in 2013, I was writing for Reality Sandwich and I pitched an article on the languaging of Black Lives Matter. And my, you know, my angle was this is going to create more racism. Like this is a deeply divisive um, name to give a movement. And that's when I was fired <laughs> from Reality Sandwich and told that they didn't need my services anymore, even though I'd written for them for years. So, a lot, you know, this is a war of information. This is a, a, a psychological war. Um, and language is the primary weapon that they are using to divide us and to attempt to enslave us. I appreciate your overview. Whether people agree or disagree with anything you or I are saying, um, it's important that they have an opportunity to hear a different point of view, and then they can judge it for what it is. But one of the ways historically, and with real honest and humanistic and spiritual scholarship, that we could understand the truth of something is look at it in the rearview mirror, then turn around like an emotional anthropologist and dissect it and say, okay, here's what we were told at the time. Here's who we gave power to. Here's who got money. Here's who took over the reins of corporations or education or government, whatever it might be. Now let's see, did it work? Now here's where we have three uh, conflated issues. First, they create fear. In Vietnam, it was if we don't invade, if we don't get in there and help, first it was with volunteers and it was for advisors. No, it wasn't. You know, it was to support a puppet regime, and then oust the, the Diem brothers by assassinating him. That was the dark side of the Kennedy brothers. And then it was to install uh, the president and the, uh, the, the next uh, vice president, which we did. And then it was just to go on for years without any concern that we were using Agent Orange, a deadly legacy that is still there today and its consequences. We exposed 3.4 million American troops to that, and many of them would go on and say they have all these illnesses. And the medical, scientific, industrial, and government complex would say, not from us, because if it was shown that it came from the chemicals that were, they were exposed to as defoliant, Agent Orange, 245D, then the government would have been responsible. So it simply washed its hand. It would later do the same thing after Saddam Hussein's um, chemical and biological warfare. Uh, Scud missiles were exploded. People were exposed. I counseled. I, I helped a lot of them. And I, as I did with Paul Rudishan, and after 100 broadcasts and many articles, we managed to uh, get the government to give about $2 billion, a tiny amount, for 3.4 million GIs. And... Uh, but did nothing to reverse their diseases. <clears throat> so they're one of these people that will acknowledge uh, acknowledge they owe something, but not acknowledge the crime that precipitated them being found that they owe something, just like a pharmaceutical company, like, uh, oh, for example, Merck, they gave us Vioxx. Uh, they knew before it was released that this, this pain reliever uh, would cause heart attacks and strokes. And they hid that. It was on the market for four years. With all the complaints, the FDA never once withdrew it from the market. As a result, when it was finally shown at trial and discovery that they knew in advance, they covered it up, they made about $12 billion and only had to give a settlement of around $5 billion. The stock value went up. Everybody was happy. Wall Street was happy. Got that behind us but nobody was held accountable. And they killed more Americans than Americans who died in the First World War or in Vietnam. And that's kind of the irony of how we can justify crimes against humanity as long as we are the ones defining that it's a crime versus someone else defining that crime. Now, the second part of this, so, so and we've continued the same identical weapons of mass destruction, the Korean War, uh, the uh, uh, the invasion of Libya uh, through 
what we control, our puppet uh, appendage of violence, which is NATO, and then also in Syria, etc., and the coups in 59 separate countries that we know of uh, because they didn't have the right leadership to align with us. In any case, um, the second part of this is the absolute irony that today the doctors and scientists, all very pro-vaccine, pro-orthodoxy, the people I would be debating throughout my career as being limited in their perspective of the human body, three of them, one from Harvard, one from uh, Oxford, and one from uh, Stanford, all top published and respected and tenured professors in epidemiology, they wrote a declaration. It's called the Great Barrington Declaration. I was one of the signers, along with about 75,000 other scientists and physicians. That was presented to different governments throughout the world, showing not anything about the vaccine, its safety or efficacy, but rather about the way it was being handled, the, the, the quarantines and what it was doing to human life, and more people would end up uh, being a victim of the quarantine than of the virus, especially uh, younger people. In any case, now they have 800,000 signatories, 800,000. And why did we go from 75,000 to 800,000? Because now we have seen through hindsight the truth that everything we were told, every single thing, the PCR test would uh, tell us if we were active and infected and therefore infecting other people, not true. Uh, a professional friend of mine was Kerry Mullis, who won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for discovering the PCR. And I have an hour and 54-minute interview that went viral. Documentarians and people took it, never got credit, but that's all right, and showed that. And him saying that you don't use this as a diagnostic tool. It does a lot, but it doesn't do that. And yet that's exactly what they did. So they lied. If they didn't use the PCR and it's false positives, probably 90% or more, the people who tested positive is a false positive, then you wouldn't have had a pandemic because you wouldn't have the numbers. So they lied. They, they lied about not being treated early. And so all those people died when we had many drugs, FDA-approved drugs, including monoclonal antibodies and steroids and antibiotics, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. And to make the point, uh, Richard Gell and myself spent about a month, and we collected every peer review study on ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and on all vitamin D and zinc. We wrote an article saying they're saying it's just horse paste, and yet here's what their actual library medicine peer reviewed journals is showing. Here are the clinical studies, and here's how many thousands of scientists worked in these studies, how many hundreds of thousands of patients were in the studies, and here are the results. Up to 90% people would have lived had they used ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine because that's what the studies, clinical studies showed. Yet the media was lying nonstop. So it's one thing to say something doesn't work. It's another thing in an open society where you're looking for something that will work, but you don't turn around and say to someone else, you're a liar, uh, you shouldn't be practicing medicine, you shouldn't get any research, you should be just gone. That's never happened before in American history. So an entire segment of our scientific and medical community was threatened and then attacked. So when the top person in epidemiology and oncologists were certified, tenured at Yale, who's probably America's leading expert on hydroxychloroquine, showed how safe it was and how beneficial it was, he was immediately attacked and pillared. Dr. Malone, the discoverer of the technology that would later lead to the development of the vaccines, was similarly pillared on the front page of the New York Times. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's my point. All of the people attacked and pillared, all of them were orthodox. They all shared the same bond. They were the ones invited to give their input at the FDA and, and World Health Organization and, and UN health policies. These were the cream of the crop, and yet they were all attacked. Now, now they are fighting back. And that's something I'm sure the establishment never anticipated. Fight them, destroy them, they'll go away and cry in a corner someplace. Not true. Now you've got 800,000 scorpions fighting in a fishbowl. And we've never seen this in American history where orthodox is fighting orthodox. Established scientists, established physicians fighting each other. And up to this point, 
all of the information that we have about what's wrong with the existing model, and I'm only using one model. I could use it in cancer. I could use it in cardiology and in, in, in certainly in mental health with the pseudoscience of psychiatry. But this is showing the Orthodox finally breaking free. And now to their, they actually, I've heard them say, I feel embarrassed because I wasn't paying attention, including doctors that got vaccinated with the COVID vaccine, only to find out later they shouldn't have, and now they're angry. So if you want to find someone who's going to fight on your side for truth and justice, find someone who is a part of the problem, the closed-minded, narcissistic, uh, self-entitled scientists and physicians, and then have them belittled, besmirched, so that their egos really feel it, and they'll come right back um, and, and earn the day. So that's the second part of this. The third part is something you mentioned. You said this all started with Rockefeller. In point of fact, the Rockefeller was the wealthiest man on the planet. By today's measure, he would be a trillionaire. They broke up his oil uh, empire, and so he started, he personally, alone, started the entire pharmaceutical industry. He founded the American Cancer Society, so he could control if any of this stuff came out showing it caused cancer. And he created the Flexner Report. Flexner went around. There were a lot of good medical schools, including naturopathic and homeopathic medical schools that have been used honorably for a long time. And now he's the one who said, well, you can't just rely upon the orthodox approach, but anything, quote, alternative or complementary is quackery. So now they demonized anyone who would use an alternative approach to disease. And that is where we are today, where, where people are afraid to try Prevention, afraid to try something is not, that is not an immediate uh, challenge to the body and its toxicity. And yet the way that we're helping ourselves is going back to nature as best as possible, living a more authentic life, and realizing that we have all been misled in every level of our life. Our major institutions that we've trusted have their own alternative agendas, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, um, um, Berkshire Hathaway, Fidelity. Five corporations control the majority of the world's assets by owning the majority of stock in their companies. You don't see their names, but they own them. Together, $30 trillion. So it doesn't matter what you and I feel. It would be any magazine, any newspaper, any radio or television station where you decide to tell the truth, you're going to be censored by the people there because sooner or later, all of these colony lines go back, not through artificial intelligence, but through their control. And the one thing they won't give up is control. So instead of competing against them and waiting for that day in some utopian ethereal dream that never, uh, that never does anything but conspire against reality, no institution will change. None. Nothing we're doing will change no matter what lessons have been learned. The only thing I see that's changing when individuals such as yourself and the doctors and scientists and sociologists and psychologists and behavioralists and ethicists decide build a better system. When you build a better system and you're allowed at least the freedom to build that, which was quickly being challenged that we don't even have the right to do things if the woke generation disagrees with it, then the competition by example Look who we treated, and they're alive. Look who you treated, and they're dead. Look at how we invest our money in a quality of life, but not in a standard of living, and the planet is better off. Look at what you do in flying in your private jets, needing Kobe beef, and, and uh, dealing in genetically engineered futures. You're wrong by example. Anybody can see it. We're right by example. Anybody can see it. And because of the Internet and they're trying to control it and have, we at least can use Rumble and other places to share the information. That's my interpretation. I'd like yours, please. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on. There's no fixing this system. This system is eating itself and it's crumbling swiftly. And I had spent, you know, I, I clued into this particular 
op plan around 2000, right? Project for New American Century. That's when I started diving into these things and realizing, oh, they're attempting to take humanity in a really dark direction. So I spent a good 20 years um, very consciously trying to stop it. And then, you know, when the, the pandemic came around, um, I was still trying to stop it. And, and also realizing that this has been going on so much longer. They changed, the World Health Organization changed the definition of pandemic in 2009 to give Bill Gates Gavi entry into these developing nations that would force them to be the lab rats for the vaccines, you know? So this has been going on for a long time, but it was when, um, when Biden was inaugurated, that was when I realized there's no saving this. Like the people have made their choice. Um, they want a, a, you know, a, a really messy enslavement reality for themselves. I'm making a different choice. So now it's time to create something new. Uh, and of course, from my perspective, the primary way we do that is with language, language that empowers people, language that unifies people, language that is respectful. But I completely agree with you. There's no saving this system. It's toxic from the inside out. And it's also not about fighting, you know, and that was another piece about the inefficacies of, of you know, ideas like anti- sexist or anti-racist or even anti-mask or anti-vaccine, right? Because it puts us in opposition, in reaction to something that is being normalized that really is crazy to be normalized. But as Dr. David Hawkins says in power versus force, force creates counterforce, right? It keeps us in constant conflict. So if I were to self-identify as anti-sexist or as anti-vaccine, right, then A, I'm normalizing sexism, I'm normalizing vaccinations, I'm also, you know, ratifying their validity on some level, and I'm just putting myself in an energetic field of conflict and fighting. The, the, the easiest way for us to create the new is to simply turn our focus and attention on the world we want to be living in, on the new structures, the new systems, the way that we want to be treated, the way we want to treat ourselves, and just keep moving in that direction and let the rotten, fetid system destroy itself as it is. Well said, Danny. Danny, thank you very much for coming on today. Danny Katz is my guest on the Progressive Commentary Hour. And keep up your absolutely outstanding work out there of informing people of the power of words, the power of thoughts that create those words, the ambition behind those needs that people have to control and conquer and realize you're not going to win against them. Just create a better world for yourself. Exactly. Thank you so much for having me, Gary. It's been such a pleasure. And thank you for all your great work in the world. Really deep bow, my friend. Thank you. I'm Gary Knoll. Thank you all for listening and have a nice day.